are now entering female founder world with your host, Jasmine Grindsworthy. We have Sarah Panton, the co-founder of Vitruvi on the show today. And first of all, welcome to the show. Hi, it's so great to see you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here and see you. Just I'm such a fan. Thank you. Just to give people a bit of context, you are a category leader in air care, which is such an interesting category and trend in itself mm -hmm. that I definitely want to talk about. You've been building the business since 2015. You have more than mm -hmm. 400 stockists across the country and you're in places like West Elm and CB2, Sephora, Nordstrom, literally everywhere. And so that's just like- Not the, everywhere uh, yet. Okay. Soon almost everywhere. everywhere. Soon yeah. to be everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of these things I, ju I just share so that people can have a touch point to understand you know, where you're at and kind of your founder story at the moment. What have I missed? What do people know about, need to know about what you're doing at Vitruvi for context? I think you nailed it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I think, I think, I think you got it. Amazing. Okay. So let's like start right at the beginning. Where did this idea for an essential oil business come from? Did you, what were you launching with as your first products? Talk me through the early days. Yeah. So early days, it was a Tumblr account. It was content. I was really interested in the clean beauty movement and clean living movement. Grew up in a farm and around, you know, a mom and dad that cared about natural products. So it was an interview site where I interviewed people about their daily rituals and the natural products they used and how that sort of propelled them to do great work. Um, and then kind of coincidentally learned about how toxic the air care industry was and fragrances and perfumes. I had suffered from some hormonal imbalances around the time that I was 13 and learned about what endocrine disruptors are. And so I was aware of the way that your products can affect your body at a young age. And so when I learned about parabens and phthalates and synthetic fragrances and air care and thinking about how we were breathing it in, I was like, oh, let's, let's make a natural version of this. Um, and so the company started in my kitchen with my brother and I building products. And it was right around the time that the clean beauty movement was starting. Um, so we were seeing retailers like Sephora and Nordstrom and Goop be category leaders in wellness. Um, and I was a part of the Sephora Accelerate program, the first clean air care brand at Nordstrom, at Goop, um, and, and what have you. And so it was really just us finding this yucky industry and making cleaner, better products. So when you talk about air care, just to give people like a little bit more understanding, what are some of those legacy brands that were kind of dominating the space when you were getting started? Yeah. So think of Febreze, Airwick, yep. Glade, those companies that most of them started in the 1940s and mm. the formulations haven't changed and they're putting toxic fragrances and chemicals in the air that we then breathe in, in our homes. Um, and so we take a different approach, a natural approach, and also an approach of self-expression where we're not masking odors in the home, but I mean, our customers care about who they are and how that's expressed in their homes and their spaces. And so just like the art on the wall or the couch pillows that we choose and the throw that maybe you save up for from anthropology, the way your home smells and the scent of it says something about who we are or who, who you are. So our customers shop seasonally for aroma and they're looking for luxurious, sophisticated, dynamic aromas uh, that are a reflection of who they are as a person. And um, traditional incumbents just haven't been able to, to do that. When you first launched, were you launching with a full kind of suite of essential oil blends? Did you launch with one product? Like what did that look like? 
So we launched with personal care first. So it was like roll-on products, natural products. And first learning was, I'm sorry, my dog is in my office. She (laughs) makes a noise. I'm sorry. (laughs) She just coughed. Um, And so first learning at the company was we actually had launched with paper labels on an oil product. So they quickly started disintegrating. I've tried that too. Off of the bottles. uh, Oh, yeah. So hopefully we both save people some some heartache there. (laughs) Don't do that. The first mess up, the first of thousands of mess ups that I've made in the last seven (laughs) years. Um, So it started as personal uh, fragrance and personal natural. And then we evolved the collection through a suite of innovation. And now you also have the beautiful stone diffusers. I have two in my home now. Um, where So when did that kind of get added to the product lineup and, and what made you think that that was, a, you know, a logical next product to launch? Uh, it wasn't, it was when we had enough money to get them, yeah. to make them. Yeah. So it's just, you have to start where you are, right? Like even if you have a vision of X, Y, and Z, it's like, we couldn't even afford the components pre-put together. So we had to buy each individual component of our first products in a hand, put them together in the evening and then pretend to be the sales team during the day. And then we were production. So we were like hand making products for Nordstrom, which was probably totally not to code. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> I feel like there are definitely some people nodding their heads listening to this. Like, yeah, we also handmade our first product. As yeah. Well. yeah, exactly. So how were you getting those first customers, both the wholesale orders and also the D2C business? Before we were um, chatting, you said that the business is like, you know, roughly a 50-50 split between e-com and wholesale. Has it always been that way? Like what were you doing in the early days to kind of grow both of those channels? Again, I mean, we've always been omni-channel, but not because it was fancy and a strategy, but because it was like a necessity to the company. Yeah. So the the core of the business and the foundation of the business was built on our boutique business. So these are sort of the, lots of them are female-run stores. Uh, they're a discovery point for customers. They're where you go to buy a cool gift for a friend and they would pay before we shipped. So mm-hmm. it was basically just, going through the coolest stores in every city, sending them a line sheet, putting together our opening order and then shipping it out to them. And that became landing a few of those key accounts. One was volume and sales into the business, but it was where the larger stores were looking to to trend spot. And so I can name on a hand five boutique stores that were small stores run by incredible women that became champions of the brand where Nordstrom and Sephora and Goob and Anthropology discovered us. Ooh, tell me about those stores. Like what, what are some of the ones that you think the, those big retailers are looking at for discovery and for trends? I mean, this is seven years ago, so yeah. it may have, have moved on. But a great example was I was living in New York for a few months and there was this store in the West Village that had kind of like papers uh, up on the windows, like it was being built. And it said something like, better for you, natural, beauty, something. So I emailed the email that was on the sign. And it ended up being Cap Beauty in the West ah, Village. I don't yeah. know Cap Beauty. Um, but I met the two founders in a basement down the street. And they were surrounded by boxes. It was like truly <laughs> a basement, like walked under and I pitched them like on the spot and they, we were one of the first brands at Cat Beauty and that's where a lot of these other retailers were looking. So it's always, I think it's important to listen to your customer and get into doors where you can have a dialogue with the, with the shop owner and the store owner. And because we didn't launch with funding and because we 
just had to grow and learn as we developed, it created in the company this feedback loop that is kind of ingrained in who we are today and listening to our stores, listening to our store owners, listening to our customers um, has really helped our product pipeline and development and how we build things. And I'm, am I right in thinking in those early days, it was literally you putting together the deck for the retailers doing the outreach and the sales? Like, was that all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah. Okay. And have, since then, do you work with the distributor? Like, how is your wholesale business run now? So our wholesale business is completely in-house and we are just for the first time bringing on a distributor for our Canadian business. About 80% of our business is in the US, um, but we have a ton of great growth in Canada. Um, and so we are bringing on someone to help distribute it across Canada. Okay. And are you mostly like Canadian and US? Are you selling internationally? How are you thinking about that? We, we sell a little bit internationally. I mean, at the beginning, we would just ship to whoever wanted to buy it, which ended up being a very expensive strategy. So we did have quite a few shops in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now we are in a few stores in Europe and Australia and about 10%, 8 to 10% of our online traffic is international. Um, and we do offer shipping options, but it, it isn't, it hasn't been a full strategy yeah. build out yet. Okay. All right. So I feel mm-hmm. like people have like a pretty good picture about what you're doing, where you're at, how you started. I want to drill into some sp- like really specific marketing moments, some things that have like worked for you as you've been growing the business. And if there's anything, mm-hmm. whether it's a specific channel, whether it's a, you know, what your funnel looks like, something that you think has really like propelled the business forward that you think other people should look at. Yeah, I think the big two. So one, and I I know everyone's business is different. So I always start with like, take everything I say with a grain of salt, because Mm -hmm. I've had so many people give me advice from industries that are just not applicable, that I used to believe. And great advice in itself. Yeah, I don't do do you find that like, it's just, yeah, everyone's a hero. And then you figure out what they did. And you're like, you actually have no clue, but you just sound really confident. Yeah. So, so take all of this as just my lived experience. Yeah. Um, I think two big differences. I was actually talking to a girlfriend about this um, this weekend who runs a furniture business. And the I think the thing that made it easier for easy for us, or not easy, easier for us, was having a hero product that was just all we talked about. Anytime there was press, anytime there was a gift guide, that was our hero product. And that was the one product that people could sort of start to associate to the company. And then secondarily was our affiliate program, which was built completely organically. You know, we are a team of people with, you know, when we were starting with not a ton of experience, but we just, again, listened to our customer. And so the affiliate program was built out of our customer experience team. And it was just people that became brand, brand advocates. And then we put a code together and it grew. And now it's hundreds of affiliates that are champions of the brand. But again, it's a feedback loop to us in terms of what's popular. What are they looking for? They're spending way more time on a, on a phone than I ever could get away with in a day, looking at trends, knowing what's next. And so those two pieces of the business have been um, I think the most critical moments in our growth. Okay. I want to talk about both of those, but let's start with the hero products. First of all, what is the hero product or what was the hero product that you kind of like going back to and talking just so people understand? Yeah. So our hero product was the white stone diffuser. And I have that, that have is them. the product. That, <laughs> perfect. Yeah. So you, you've got it right. Yeah. And so that's when, when I would do press events, 
and talk to editors. That was just the product we would always give. So helping to share the narrative around the product that you want to be known for because people are busy and simple and you just need that one piece that they can sort of add to it. So mm-hmm. one scent and one aroma. I hear this strategy a lot mm-hmm. from different brands that are successful is that they launch with that one hero product or that they tell their story one around one hero product and like everything else is like complementary mm-hmm. to it, um, which I think is really mm-hmm. interesting. And, I, you know, I'm hearing it again and again and again. What makes a good hero product? Like what what should a, a founder be thinking about when they're like, this is this is the product that tells our story or this is the product I should launch with? The customer tells you. Mm. That's it. I mean, when we launched Vitruvi, it was built for men. And now 90% of our customers identify as women. It was built for men? So you just have to listen. Yeah. It was built as like a life hacking scent, better for you. Our first press was in Details Magazine and GQ. Oh my God. Okay. Wow. So you just, you know what I mean? Like you just need to listen. The customer's going to tell you, you have to be curious. And I think, um, you know, we knew that that was an interesting product because it got like a little bit of buzz, but even just from friends and family, like if, if people, I think, I believe authentic listening is a superpower. And if you actually listen to the person in front of you and listen to the tone of the voice and how their pitch changes, you can understand, you know, if you have a product suite of skincare in front of them, the, the product they ask the most questions about, like sometimes it's nuanced and simple, but the customer will always tell you what they're most interested in. And so we just leaned into that. That's so And then what made it a differentiator. That's so interesting. Cause I'm going, you know, we were speaking about this before the call and I have this skincare business called The Buff and it's small. We yeah, have a little bit it. of a retail presence, but mostly online. And I'm at this point now where I'm kind of figuring out, okay, is this just going to be like a small little thing? I know that the products and the formulas are good. Or like, how do we, how do we grow this or how do we kind of change the story or change that we're, we're really rooted in jojoba oil, everything sourced from inland from the Byron Bay area in Australia, which is like a really beautiful region. The farms are beautiful. And so I'm thinking, okay, do we, do we expand out on jojoba personal care? Is that what it looks like? And I just think like what you're saying about, you know, listening to the customers and trying to get that feedback is it does seem like a really obvious thing, but I think it's also difficult to distill. It can be difficult to distill exactly what they're trying to say because I do think a lot of the time folks are trying to make you feel better about something or they don't want to, you know, if they're like connected with the brand or they connected with you on social media, they don't want to necessarily always give you super honest feedback. You just have that like, yeah, I'm Tell sorry me. to cut you off, but like I, people will do that because they're excited for you, right? Yeah. They're celebrating, they're like, oh my gosh, I love it, I love it. And then I always go, okay, if you had to change three things, what would you change? Mm. And if you give them that many, then they will usually do it. And they're usually taken aback, but I never, I try to never leave a conversation without getting feedback. And I usually say, if you were to make it different, what would you do? And some of our biggest design features, even on our Whitestone diffuser, I can pinpoint the dinner party on a new year's when I asked a couple, what would you change? And they told me a design feature that we then implemented and was pivotal to the brand and our success. And so just, you know, yes, 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 that's nice. And the compliments are nice. And you know, that you need those because it's really hard to build a <laughs> business. So make sure to feel that. Right. And then, and then, um, ask for what you can do better. Yeah. And, and that makes you, people feel like you care. Yeah. 
Oh, and God, you know what? As founders, like we do care. We do want to know that honest advice. It's just how do you how do you extract that? And were you having, you know, it sounds like you were speaking with friends who also had the product one-on-one conversations. Were you getting that feedback in more structured ways? Or is it really just like get a one-on-one FaceTime with customers and then that's the best way to get that great feedback? Yeah, so we did a few different ways. I do five customer calls every month that our customer experience team sets up. So usually a range of superstar fans that, you know, have purchased since 2018 and own 40 diffusers and because you can learn a lot from them. And then people that have maybe had a poor experience or the product Mm -hmm. didn't quite stack up. And then, you know, people that are maybe new customers that did have a good experience. I do five of those every month. And um, I ask a lot of questions. And I'm really grateful for those conversations. Mm, how often does that actually change something you're working on or your approach? Is it more just like a check-in or do you actually like take that information and go and make a change in the business? Oh, I mean, look for, I look for trends. So yeah. sometimes it's validating an assumption. So, but it, it is, again, it's nuanced. So this one customer I was speaking with a few months ago referenced, um, referenced not wanting lavender and everything. And that's why she discovered us. She references a specific influencer that was a theme that had been coming up in other areas of the business. So that was like, okay, validated that investment. Uh, then she talked about already thinking about what her home was going to smell like for the holidays. Mm. And that validated the seasonality that we see in our marketing and in our purchasing. And so I think I go between validating assumptions that we have with, you know, obviously there's a product issue something's leaking or something. Yep. Can we jump on it? Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's different. And sometimes they take you in trajectories that you don't expect. I don't know. Do you do customer calls or? Yeah, I, I've done a few. I don't do them as regularly as I should, but I'm doing a lot at the moment. I was always figuring out what like the next step looks like in the business. This is another question that I have for you as well. It's like, where do you think that there's white space and is there white space still in this better for you category? Like where is that white space in, in consumer? It just feels like there's so much out there at the moment. Yeah. I mean, we are betting on air care is the final frontier of better for you. Yeah. Right. So we've seen better for you in skincare, in hair care, in personal care, in home, um, in laundry, in cleaning. And you know, so we're, we're here to be category leaders in better for you, home scenting and air care. Um, but I don't know, I feel like I would kind of push on your statement because yes, it is easy to start, but it's hard to finish. Mm. And I believe that grit and just the ability to outwork anyone has gotten me to where I am today. And we didn't have more money than anyone. We didn't have more connections. I'll, I can just simply outwork yeah. most people. Yeah. So I feel like it's just, I feel like it's sometimes it's just grit yeah. and timing and luck, right? So I, I, I don't believe that you always need that perfect business plan. I don't have one. Mm. I don't know. Do you have a business plan? <laughs> I don't Shaking my head. It changes. I mean, after COVID, like who can plan longer than six months out? Like this is nuts. The whole world is different. So I, yeah, I'm, I'll go to, I'll go up against an MBA any day. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So I also wanted to dig into what you're saying about the affiliate program and get into the nuts and bolts of how that, how that works. It sounds like a lot of your affiliates are customers, people who have purchased the brand and mm-hmm. then you have to start as customers. They yeah. start as customers. Okay. And then, so what does mm-hmm. that, what does that kind of flow look like? Are you, people are customers, they leave a review and then you respond with a, with a referral code. Like how does that work? 
Yeah. So it starts out usually, so there's two different tiers. Now we have a little more cash. So sometimes mm -hmm. we reach out to special people now, but most of it is still inbound. So it's a customer that our customer experience team, which we call our wellness concierge, they are the coolest team in the company. They're just like fun. They're interesting. They so know what's up. They're just so on it. Um, I'm really proud of that team and I love getting to sit with them in the office. They'll be in conversation with someone. The person reaches out. They're excited. We usually gift product and then see how that post performs. And we use a program called Grin. I don't know if you know mm -hmm. Grin or have used it. We really love it. Um, and that lets us see how, um, how certain creative is performing. And then they can fill out an online application. And we have a tiered system with different um, discount codes and revenue um, you know, availability that they can make. And so you kind of tier throughout the program. And so as you get to a certain tier, you get to be part of launches and we send you a package before. And um, it's just been a really neat way to, again, get feedback from those people. We seed them early product before it's released. Um, they become part of our launch campaigns. And I don't know about you, but digital has been such a horrible landscape to navigate the last year. Um, I'm going to just go for it and say it's been rough. Yeah. And so being able to, to understand and use user-generated content completely authentically and to have had those relationships that we built. I mean, we're still figuring it out. I think content and advertising is changing. It feels like on a week-by-week -week basis um, as attention spans shorten and our desire for advertising changes mm -hmm. at a light speed pace. But um that has been an area of the business that has been helpful to us. So, but we're still crack, cracking the code. What do you look for in, in a, what makes like a good affiliate? I think to be able to authentically speak to the brand, I think someone that likes the product and knows it, mm -hmm. that knows who their, their customer, who their audience is. You know, lots of times our best performing content isn't something we would maybe put on Vitruvi's Instagram feed but they know who their, their community is and they speak authentically to them. And so that, I think that's been the biggest interesting um, differentiator for me. Like it's not all content. Some of it is not going back on our feed. Some of it's just for their channels. So um, just giving people the product and then letting them make what they feel that is best. When you were just talking then about, you know, digital is such a difficult landscape at the moment. And I agree, and I'm hearing this again and again, and again from different founders, and something that people are kind of saying is that they're kind of turning to partnerships and brand partnerships again in a way that they weren't for a few years. And I'm just wondering if you mm -hmm. are, you know, leveraging brand partnerships, if you've done anything that's kind of worked or are you kind of more, you're more focused on that affiliate avenue? No, I mean, trying to acquire customers right now is very hard. Yeah. So we are, and, and we are looking at like top of funnel how are we acquiring customers? How are we reaching new audience? So we are exploring out of home, you know, things and direct mail again. Yes, and, you are the um, third brand person to say to say really, mail. yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of nuts to me that I can know where someone lives that went to our website, but I'm not allowed to send an email, like a, an image to their phone. Yeah, like, I mean that's a whole other can of worms, though. Yeah. But so yeah. I mean, direct mail, we're, we have a strategic brand partnership launching in the fall that's just like fingers crossed. I hope that, you know, this helps us acquire more customers, but we're really just like trying to build more people into the funnel yeah. so that we can, um, you know, advertise to them later. And, are you, and are you seeing that? 
at your business or with other businesses? Yeah, and I'm hearing I'm hearing this a lot that people are, are just yeah, as digital ads become more expensive and more limited in what you can do as well, it's kind of like okay, well, how do we how do we acquire new users? A lot of people are really like doubling down on TikTok that I speak to as well. There's a lot of partnerships mm-hmm. and also sampling programs. That's something else that I'm hearing a bit mm-hmm. as well. Do you do any sampling? Yeah. No, we don't. We haven't done it formally, but we are working to kick that off. We are also launching a loyalty program um, mm. for the first time oh, as well. Oh, amazing. Awesome. And then, okay, so we've got to like wrap up kind of soon, but I wanted to also kind of understand like where you sit in the business now. Like what is your superpower? What is your area of expertise? Or are you across everything at the moment? Oh, no, I don't think anyone should ever be across Mm -hmm. everything, but I care about everything. Mm -hmm. So I'm definitely not an expert. Um, Where my area of focus is right now is our marketing and our acquisition, how we're speaking to customers, product development, and obviously business development. So but we have an incredible VP of marketing um, that comes to us from almost a decade at Herschel and she's leading the charge there and she's incredibly talented. So I just get to work with awesome people yeah. now and learn a ton Amazing. and then always try to tie it back to the customer. And then the last question that I ask everyone who comes on the show is for a resource. It could be a book, a podcast, something that's kind of helped you as a leader and as you've been growing your business. Um, yeah, I would say the hard thing about hard things is an incredible book. Have you read yes, it? Yes, that's a great one. Yeah. And I read it when we started and it didn't quite hit. And then I read it like last year and I was like, Ooh, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then um, I think one of the best, uh, Stephen Covey, this like seven habits of highly effective people, I think is um, really powerful and something I grew up reading. And then I read a lot of Zen books mm. and um, the art of communicating is one of my favorite books. I can send a link to it and just what it means to communicate, how we show up for people and the power of authentic communication and active listening. And it's more of a person to person thing, but business is people and relationships. So that would probably be my, my three. You talked about the seven habits of highly effective people. Are you like, what does your routine look like? Are you really structured? Do you have a very structured morning routine? Do you wake up early? Like, what does it look like? I'm super boring. I, you know, I don't have a, a, I drink a lot of water. I don't know, like, and a lot of coffee. So I, I wake up early as early as I can. Like I have no super smoothie. I don't drink Mm -hmm. lemon water in the morning. Just have a normal glass of water, like a normal human. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, have some coffee and and get after it. Yeah. I need to know, I need to know what time you wake up in the morning and people are probably like, this is a really boring question, but I'm someone who's very much trying to be a morning person and constantly in my life, like trying to be more of a morning Mm -hmm. person because everyone I hear from who is doing really well, wakes up early. What time do you wake up in the morning and what time do you start work? Okay. So I probably wake up at six, six 30 and I start working immediately after I don't do a meditation. I don't do a morning workout. I just open up my freaking laptop and start working. It's probably so bad, (laughs) but it's, it's the program. It's 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 real life. It has been a struggle though, because my partner does, is not a morning person. So now I stay up really late and I get up early. So mm-hmm. I'm going to find a balance there. Yeah, that's a tricky yeah. one. Sarah, thank you so much for all of your advice. It's been awesome to hear about how you're growing Vitruvi and you've got so many great insights. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate you having me. I could talk to you forever.